You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospin. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon here with Christoph Jospin and Paul Gamble. We are in New York City right now. We're in our Airbnb in Brooklyn. We are happy to be here. We have seemingly nothing but meetings running around the city the entire time. Christoph, are you happy to be back in your in your homeland? I am, but I think I no longer feel like a New Yorker. I feel like an ex-New Yorker. I jaywalked this morning on the way to the bodega. It felt amazing. No one looked. No one judged. They judge in Seattle. Do they? I've, I've never never noticed. This. <laughs> yeah, they judge, they judge really hard. In, in New York, it's expected to jaywalk. We, we judge you especially hard for uh, running stop signs on your bike. Uh, yeah, that's just in my blood. I, I have seen people in, uh, it's always in Midtown when the tourists come, but I see people uh, will walk in front of cabs and the cabs will keep going, just lay on the horn and be like, this is your choice. <laughs> Do you want to die or no? Yeah, well, okay, let, let's get going. I'm really excited to have our guest today. It is another validation of just how amazing the connection economy is. Like, People are out there wanting Connection to make economy. You do a TED talk on that. That's well, a... someone else can. It, it's just about like people are out there wanting to make the world a better place, wanting to know about each other. And then once they do the sort of flash of, hey, let's get things done as quickly as possible, just gets that much stronger. And I forget how I had seen this one woman's profile. Her name is Maggie Hanna. It's not our guest. Um, but she had something that. Well, so first of all, she was saying really smart things about sustainability and energy and said, only add people on LinkedIn who give specific reasons as to why they should add me. And I looked at her profile and I gave her a number of reasons and Maggie and I really hit it off. And then Maggie joined something called the Future Fit Foundation. And there was a presentation from John Elkington and Lorraine Smith about Volans and various elements of sustainability. And this is a group that they're not the cookie cutter sustainability. They're thinking on the edge and looking at where the world is going. You know, very much the Wayne Gretzky skate to where the puck is, not where or skate to where the puck is going, not to where the puck is. Right, yeah. And so Maggie connected us to Lorraine and we we're just sort of reminiscing. Both Lorraine and I were getting chills on that call because we were realizing so many of the connections. And so of the many hats that Lorraine wears as an independent consultant, one of them is Volans. I'm sure we'll learn about a number of the other hats as well. Lorraine is also a podcast listener. So again, she knows what she's getting into. Yeah, feel free to lay some more flattery on us. That's, that's welcome. <laughs> yeah, that's, I've got it in my hopper here. <laughs> we don't invite people who would disagree with us. Kidding. <laughs> but without any further ado, Lorraine, you are an amazing person, I think. And... I think you also have a fascinating story. And so we'd love for you to start with telling your story. Why, why, why is sustainability and working on reversing climate change something that you care so deeply about? Wow. Well, thank you. And it's really fun to be here. It's, it's actually more fun, I think, to just keep listening to your podcast, but I'll try to contribute to, to the fun. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. And my story probably has too many twists and turns to make any sense of in a brief podcast, but I'll, I'll cherry pick a couple spots. And I've heard a lot of your guests talk about their different pathways into the sustainability conversation, the regenerative agriculture conversation, et cetera. 
And I think one of the things I love most about that is that there are just infinite doorways. So I'll point to doors number one and two and leave the the infinite ones for future conversations. Um, and I think the first one really happened in a recess playground fight in uh, grade school when I was probably about seven, where two of my friends at the time were debating religion of all things. And one was from a Catholic family and the other was from a Protestant family and they were arguing about which one had figured God out. And I was raised as a religious mutt, no access to any one pathway or the other. And I remember later that night thinking about the fight and thinking, you know, that didn't make a lot of sense to me because everything we need, we can see when we look sideways, because we can see all the forests and the gardens and the flowers and the people. And I was just totally puzzled by this argument about who had figured God out better. So that was probably the beginning of my thinking about how we interpret ourselves within the wider world and and what nature has to do with it. And this was clearly in Canada. Yes. <laughs> uh, it was. I did grow up in Toronto, actually, as quite a city mouse, although also lots of access to to nature, partly because Toronto is built on three beautiful riverbeds. There are three rivers that run through Toronto, and I played a lot in the ravines, probably more than would be deemed safe today. Um, but I also spent a lot of time in farmland and in, in forest land in Northern Ontario. But fast forward to around the year 2000, before I knew what sustainability was or corporate responsibility or all of the synonyms we throw around, I found myself working in a financial services institute. I was in this episode of trying to have a proper job and be a normal person. And I remember the themes I talked about at the time were greed and vanity. It was like, why don't I just try those and see what they're like? Because they seem to be kind of normal and people seem to be thriving with those. So I'll, I'll check it out. As one does in New York City, right? At the time, I was still in Toronto. Oh, okay. And a number of my friends, wonderful people whom I respect dearly, are lawyers, bankers, you know, leading those normal lives. And uh, so I sort of got recruited into a financial services role. Lots of things I could say about that role, but one of the things I recall very distinctly was being in a meeting. This was in a company that, although it's Canadian, its bread and butter is the 401k industry in the US, which is essentially retirement savings. So maple syrup portfolios, right? Yes, that's oh. right. It was almost 90% uh, invested in maple syrup uh, and then a few other things like hedge funds and other oh, okay. uh, financial instruments. And one of the meetings that we had, my role was to bridge between the IT group and the marketing group. Of course, the marketing group wants to say, invest more money. And the IT group needed to figure out how to do that legally and manage all their fiduciary responsibilities. And I had a kind of translator role, which is something I, I find myself in a lot. And I asked in this group of about 15 people, a few VPs from different parts of the business and some of the coders and some of the marketers, why don't we include in our messaging, you know, along with showing older people in hammocks and sailing and holding their grandchildren's hands, why don't we include in the messaging information about what the money's doing while it's invested over these 20, 30 years? And everybody turned and looked at me and said, who cares how the money's invested? It's just that they have money at the end of the day when they retire. And I remember a penny sort of dropped for me. Really? That's, that's how global investing works? Who cares how the money is invested and whether or not it's creating value? So I uh, ran away for three months and traveled across Canada, and I basically put my name onto what was then a bulletin board on the World Wide Web through my spinning and weaving and textile artisan group to see if any farmers needed volunteers on their farms. And I was handed from farm to farm heritage breeders of this and that and, and different agricultural fairs and a for, lot of different things. Uh, to spin either wool, sheep's wool, mohair, rabbit. Some were growing flax, all kinds of good stuff. Cool. 
So I learned a lot about farming, about life, about people, about women entrepreneurs. And then when I came back to Toronto, a friend of mine called me and was like, have you spent all your money yet? Do you need a proper job? And the answer was yes and yes. And so I got hired on to work at Canadian Business for Social Responsibility. That was 2004. Fast forward to today, I'm still in that field. I'm now a board member of CBSR and I'm making trouble in a few related ways. That's amazing. What what a great story. Yeah, you definitely fit in around here. We all sort of have a weird paths that led us here. And that's a part of what makes the space dynamic and fun. I'm curious, how do you make trouble these days, Lorraine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can actually organize it into two neat categories, but they interact with one another quite a bit. I say in in simple terms, I write and I lend a hand. So I write a blog uh, that's on my website, and then I also write content. I contribute to reports, some of which I've co-authored with John Elkington and his team, that explore the themes related to a regenerative economy. And of course, regenerative agriculture sits very happily in that space. So that writing takes a number of different forms. I'm, I'm also working on my first nonfiction book that explores the relationship between trees and people. And that writing is something I've been exploring for a very, very long time, long before I knew about this form of making trouble. And the lending a hand part is I contribute to a number of different teams. So Volans and John Elkington's uh, team based in London is a group that I spend a lot of time working with. I, I think of them as thought partners and, and instigators. And I also contribute on a couple other teams or directly to clients. So one quite tied to this agriculture and soil carbon conversation I sit on the sustainability advisory board of a large forest products company based in Brazil called Fibria. And that would be an example of me sort of lending a hand to an executive team to think about how they can contribute to the sustainable economy of the future. It's quite a story. You have a hard time coming up against John Elkington, though, whose story began well. Started with me looking at thousands of eels. <laughs> still one of the, the greatest intrigue comments that's ever been dropped on this show. Uh, I want to hear about this book. What's uh what's the relationship between humans and trees? Oh gosh. Um sure, yeah. I I've had the very good fortune of living in a number of different places, sometimes for work, sometimes for school, sometimes just because I had a really interesting conversation with a taxi driver, followed by another interesting conversation with another taxi driver that made me spend some time in Ethiopia. And so long ago, I lived in Brazil as a teenager, and then I've gone back a fair bit for work because I speak Portuguese. Were you, were, were you in Sao Paulo? I was just Did, the did other you go day. to the American school there? Uh, no, I was in a regular Brazilian high school. Uh, oh, my dad went to that school. Oh, nice. I was wondering. Yeah, no, I was fully immersed in Brazilian culture, which was an incredible gift in 1989, the year of the first democratic election. And of course, there's a very interesting election playing out right now. Maybe we, maybe we have time for that here. Maybe we don't. But all to say, living in Brazil, uh, being from Canada, and I've lived in many parts of Canada. I now live in in New York. Um, also spent some time in East Africa, in Ethiopia, in a couple episodes. I lived in Germany on exchange as well, and, and, and. Through these periods of my life of almost half a century, I've started to notice a pattern that trees, and I, and I think you could insert nature or biology for trees in all of these sentences I'm about to say, but I'll use trees as a sort of handy, visible proxy. They've been telling us things forever. And it's my interpretation that we've just not been picking up the instruction manual. And the pattern I've noticed is one of essentially mass deforestation. That's that's not a news headline. Uh, but deforestation in a way that's been very subtle and 
that we have the potential to hear and understand and, and come back to and basically heal. And I think if we listen to how nature is trying to get things done and get out of its way, we'll, we'll do well. So the book is really a series of nonfiction stories. You could call them memoir or travelogue, but each one is me finally getting the message from trees. I worked as a tree planter in Northern Ontario with to pay my way through a couple of years of school and tree planting. I don't know if you guys have ever met any tree planters, but it's a pretty interesting summer job. It's like the lumberjack song from Monty Python. Yes, except all day. And when you're in the North, the day is long. So it starts very early and it ends very late. So you're working 14 hour days, planting a tree every six feet. You're carrying those trees and you're physically creating the space to put them in the ground day after day. That, that core is probably pretty strong, huh? Uh, yeah, well, it was when I was, you know, <laughs> 19, 20. So, and then other experiences with trees, working with forest products companies in Brazil and listening to the dialogue between the FSC, the Forest Stewardship Council, which seeks to certify forest products with wonderful intentions around economic, social, and environmental measurable impacts. And yet they face the same puzzles we do as, as humans trying to trying to function. So much more I could say on the book, but it's trying to explore our relationship with trees and come out with a more hopeful uh, hopeful set of possibilities for how we can be within the wider world. That's fairly characteristic of your writing too. I always, whenever I see a new blog post of yours go up, I always take a look. And that's one reason I think that you and Nori have a connection is that we tend to look for the silver lining or the opportunity there, which is not always that common in the climate change space. I think it's uh, definitely more helpful for generating action and not feeling totally out of control and powerless. Yeah, I actually think that's a really important point. And I, I didn't say in my answer to how I make trouble, but I'll add it in here. One of the things I try to infuse in everything I do, including my own conversations with myself, is this sense of where the mindset or the paradigm plays a role. And, and I'm sure you and most of your listeners could probably run circles around my technical knowledge of systems thinking. Uh, but I've spent a lot of time reading and exploring the work of Danella Meadows. I'll just insert, she was a hand spinner and, and produced a lot of her own yarn, <laughs> your, little known fact. <laughs> well, and, and if you've ever spun yarn, you'll quickly see that it's a form of systems thinking and, and integration that kind of manifests in a way that's kind of neat. But all to say, I think that the notion of the silver lining comes from a mindset or a paradigm approach where, and I, I have some kind of awkward conversations with my so-called environmentalist peers where I, I get the intention, you know, we want, I want a better world. I'm pretty sure everyone I meet wants a better world, but what do we mean by that? And people become so entrenched in their beliefs that I think one of the reasons the goosebumps happened for me on that initial call with you, Christoph, and with John Elkington was that you are providing at least pieces of the pathway that help those diehard environmentalists and people who are really concerned about climate broaden their mindset to recognize this is not an emissions reduction conversation. This is not an energy transition conversation. This is not a coal is evil conversation. This is a conversation about realigning our industrial value chains and our human interactions with a natural process that has been underway and evolving for 3.8 billion years. You articulate it slightly differently, I think, in the Nori universe, but you offer a financial mechanism and a conversation that helps reorient that narrative. So I think it's more than a silver lining. I think it's a functional lining, and, and I'm kind of excited about that. <laughs> That's great. And thanks for all the, the nice things that we're forcing you to say about Nori on the air. <laughs> no forcing whatsoever. <laughs>
I, I was trying to think of a way to, to extend that metaphor. Um, of, of course. You, you know how we do it. Right? I know. I, I think we found each other in a metaphorical space, so I'm happy to keep playing there. Yeah, well, it's kind of like we've got this lining around this small little piece of yarn or whatever, but we have to make it so much bigger and so much more inclusive. I got to teach you guys to spin because then you'll you'll know where to go with those uh, those metaphors. I think when I was a kid, I remember doing the the latch hook. Oh, nice. Kids. Rug hooking. Yeah. 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 I remember. I don't think I did much beyond that though. Do you do it with like the knitting with the needles? Well, I've got some knitting off to the side there. We can check it out a little later, but uh, knitting is essentially just creating a continuous knot. If you take a look at the spelling, you see there's an interesting little clue in knitting. <laughs> we, let's go there some other time. Although I will say it's a, it's a physical manifestation of taking something that has no integrity and giving it strength. So I'd like to go in a different direction other than knitting, but perhaps the weaving that you do in the boardrooms is relevant here. Uh, you know, you're working with companies sometimes which have been demonized. You know, we'd look at deforestation as a major cause for climate change and forestry companies can be the quote unquote bad guys, but they're not necessarily the bad guys per se. And so I'm curious, the experience that you find when you're in boardrooms and convincing people who have always sort of seen the world in one way, and you're just trying to squeeze them to see it in a slightly different way that might actually impact their bottom line in a beneficial way and most certainly impact the environmental bottom line. What do you see working most effectively and what do you see not working? Yeah, that's a that's a really good bundle of questions and I'm going to I'm going to turn some of them around and I'm with respect I'm going to challenge some of the mindset that brings those questions forward because I've had a lot of sort of ahas going through my work over the years with forest products companies. Um so where to start there? First I'll just say it's my personal belief that I can't convince anyone of anything. So as soon as the word convince is part of the project, mm. I accept defeat and I stop that pathway. Likewise, it's very difficult to convince me of something. I've changed things and I've spent a fair bit of time and done a bit of writing exploring why have I changed things, but it's pretty much never because somebody sat me down and convinced me. So when I am in the privileged position of being paid to share what I think with somebody who works internally at a company or a group of people or, or executives or other stakeholders, I first try to understand what the current circumstances are. And so in the case of this company that I do a fair bit of work with and, and have known for a number of years, so hopefully I'm not telling tales out of school, and Fibria is incredibly transparent about what they do, I think we quickly see that what the man on the street or even the deeply knowledgeable climate professionals that I spend time speaking with don't realize is a forest products company from Brazil is not cutting rainforests. They're not deforesting. In fact, unlike a lot of parts of the world, say Texas, no offense, Texas, companies in Brazil are required to protect almost a third of their land as native forest. Imagine telling a Texan rancher, you need to put aside a third of your land for native forest. That would be a sort of non-starter conversation. In Brazil, it is legally required and upheld and certainly upheld by publicly listed companies who are you know, carefully regulated and very public about what they do. So to begin with, Vibria and all of its forest products company peers uh, in Brazil are not deforesting. It's just a basic reality. What are they doing? They're growing trees on plantations. So that is a monospecies uh, conversation. It's a lot more similar to soy production or corn production. I, I call it slow growing corn. 
These are they're closer to agriculture companies than than the lumberjacks of of yesterday. But they have a very interesting conversation that that I think there's a future opportunity. And this is where our conversations tend to hover. It's why when they asked me to join their advisory board, I said, can I be me? You know, because I'm a bit weird and I'm I'm gonna say some things that maybe don't show up in every conversation. I'm gonna talk about biomimicry. I'm gonna talk about regenerative agriculture. I'm gonna talk about why creating shared value doesn't mean giving permission to communities to have rights. It means the knowledge is in your communities. They know the forests, they know the soil, they know the hydro, you know, the hydrological cycles better than anyone. That's where the value is. So it isn't about allowing them to function. It's about enabling them to thrive. And maybe you'll generate some value through that. So I'm not really convincing anybody of anything, but I am I may be a bit of a spore-based actor within a corporation where I'm trying to sort of sneeze a few spores onto people and some <laughs> You're will, worse than Kristoff. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I like you guys. Some will take purchase and evolve. Um, some may just, you know, cause infections and harm. But I do think it's important, and I and I mean this with all sincerity and respect and, and challenging myself as well, that we check our assumptions at the door that we let go of Brazil forest company deforestation and we try to understand what is the status of deforestation in Brazil right now and how does it relate to that of Indonesia, which is also globally relevant and very different. And by the way, how does that relate to Canada or the United States? And the simplest pattern, which I learned in my travels and which I seek to express through some of my writing, is that the biggest difference is we just deforested a long time ago. So like we're sitting on yeah. one big deforested patch right now and we don't call this deforestation, but we're pretty quick to, you know, retweet memes that trash a company tied to deforestation in their supply chain without understanding, you know, the house you own that you're generating personal equity from that you're proud of and good for you is part of a deforestation supply chain. But come on, you're shattering my my sense of. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, no, you're absolutely right. I looked at a picture the other day of Seattle in 1880, and I saw some of the old growth trees, very few, still standing there, over 200 feet tall. But you know, they're all gone. Like in Seattle proper. In Seattle proper, right? And it was it's quite interesting just to think. Yeah, we used to have enormous forests in the Pacific Northwest, and they're all gone yeah. because we deforested and we built cities with them. That burned right. down and then we built them again. So great, more lumber. <laughs> right. Um, and I don't I don't mean to disparage progress or home ownership or urban development. I, I mean simply to cast light on my understanding of reality. And and one of the other things I do in making trouble, and a lot of this has come from listening and, and learning to your guests and and interacting with I think people who are doing great things in the regenerative ag space. And so I bring this into my little spore sneezing events. We see, you know, we even have a metaphor to see the forest for the trees, and that's a handy meme, and we throw that around. But if we break that down a little bit, we see forests, and within forests, we see trees. But we can't see with our human eyes the soil microbiology, right? We we know it's there. You guys know it's there, and a lot of your stakeholders are, are pretty uh, solid on what goes on in soil, although it's an emerging scientific space. But most people have absolutely no idea the degree to which soil microbiology is what has essentially maintained our lives on earth through time. And so we don't recognize what we've lost. You know, the 
Joni Mitchell, fellow Canadian, really just sums it all up. We we don't know what we've got till it's gone. We're still trying to figure out that big yellow taxi of our lives, and we're we're running to keep up with the soil science, and yet we're bashing companies for deforesting, not realizing we already did that. And we, we have a lot of healing and learning to do to bring that back. Yeah, I can see it being a bit of a problem to be the beneficiary of those past actions, but then also casting aspersions to others who are trying to develop much less wealthy than the person criticizing. That probably uh, justifiably rubs you the wrong way. Yeah, or, or I, I try not to judge because I'm the benefactor of that as well. You know, I'm a middle class white lady from Canada living in a small but perfectly comfortable apartment in New York City. I'm not suffering as a result of that deforestation. If I stand back a little bit further, I'd say, you know, and this hopefully veers us into the silver lining. Um, well, maybe I'm not suffering today. And I'm I have many great choices and I'm excited about my life and I feel very engaged. I'm aware that collectively we have some work to do. And and I promise there's a silver lining at the end of this sentence, but the not so silver lining is if we keep going where we're headed, we'll end up where we're headed, right? Like it's not pretty. And it's, I'd rather avoid catastrophe. I'd rather avoid a mass human uh, failing and, and some of the biological systems that we'll take down with us. And I think we're perfectly capable. I think we have incredible knowledge and will and capacity. And so I'm excited about leveraging that. It's less about being rubbed the wrong way and more an awareness of there's a way better way to be. And I'd rather be that. Yeah. What is that? What do we do? <laughs> Tell me the answers. We invest in Nori tokens <laughs> and we amplify what we know. I mean, nature has given us an incredible instruction book, right? We've got those who understand far better than I am, very much a lay person getting sneezed on on this one. Um, but we, we have the instructions for how networks work, for how soil dynamics are able to communicate. We have so much information about how this works. I think what you guys are doing is an example of sort of imitating nature, right? You're, you're a piece of a network. You are, or you're even multiple nodes of a network. And so I think what we do is we amplify the pieces of the network that work. And I mean, I love a mighty oak tree. I love seeing old growth in the rare instances where you get to see those big trees. They're just staggeringly beautiful, but more and more lately, I'm like, okay, tree, you're pretty awesome, but what's going on underneath you is where the real party is. So I think it's how do we incentivize through financial mechanisms and inspire people to understand that party underneath. I think that's the path forward. <laughs> I've heard people all describe it as the underground economy. I like, what is it, the party underneath? <laughs> yeah, that's where the action is. That's where all the information is being transferred and yeah. the carbon is being exchanged. And they're yeah. talking to each other. And exactly. it's really crazy to think about the web of interconnectivity and the way that the mycorrhizal fungi are sort of Ross, you're learning all about this D through. Does this make it like a tree mullet where it's, what? it's business up top, but the party <laughs> oh, underneath? Oh, nice. Paul for the win. Yes, well, it does. Well done. Well, we're, we're sort of burying the lead a little bit. I think there's an exciting announcement that I'd like to put on the air. You know, Nori has done webinars on our own and that has had some success and we've 
shared some knowledge, but I just got off the phone um, with one of your colleagues who gave me permission to say this. Uh, so Nori and Volans will be working together to help share knowledge about much of what we're talking about in the new carbon economy and the drawdown, carbon drawdown economy, and like how might all this work and how can we educate and share knowledge so that the world is even more interconnected and has the agency to do something and really create change. So that makes me excited. I kind of want to put it back to you in terms of you're a change maker, whether you like it or not, Lorraine, you're, you're a troublemaker, but you're really a change maker. And you're totally right to call me out and say, no, it's not about convincing. It's about guiding in, in some way. And so that said, we, okay, we don't need to use the word convince, but I'm furious. We're, the, the rate of change is not happening quickly enough. We really need to push the needle. Like now, how do we do it? Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. You know, I had a really heartwarming, but also challenging conversation with a good friend of mine. I don't know if you guys know uh, Nick Parker, who's sort of the grandfather of the clean tech movement based in Toronto. Toronto's like a weird vortex of really neat folks doing amazing stuff, including Nick. And uh, he was asking me, so so what are you doing for a living these days? And, and the first thing that came to mind really unthought through was I worry. And, you know, I didn't lead with that when you asked me what I do, but I feel like in a way, I, I totally get it. I, I've got that fire in my belly and and it's on a cellular level, right? Like I feel like I, this may sound drastic and irritating, but I feel deeply concerned about where we are and how we shift. I do think it's worth as a sort of, not just a coping mechanism, but a progress mechanism. It's worth focusing on where knowledge is emerging that can help. So for, I mean, definitely what you guys are doing and and listening to you and following some of the trails you've pointed to has been helpful. A few come to mind, for example, you know, there's an amazing book called The Soil Will Save Us by an author named Kristen Olson. I know that some of your people are familiar with her people. And, you know, that book puts in such accessible terms, really basic soil science and why the the sequestration of carbon in soil is a key piece of the solution. And I think of work by people like that, and I think that's that's part of where we need to go. We need it's not sexy, it's not you know the greatest TED talk in the world. It's not I don't know. I guess there's stuff on Netflix or whatever. Maybe it's not that, and that's not how people want to spend their time. But if we're serious about getting where we'd rather be, I think we need to energize the stuff that's working and stop energizing the stuff that's not. I also think there's some hidden pathways, like. I think one of the fun things I remember about field trips as a kid, you know, where you went on these neat field trips, whatever it was, the greatest parts were things you didn't know were going to happen. And I feel like that's part of our path forward is like, what, what am I not thinking of? So I'll give an example of something I wasn't thinking of that just fell into my lap and made me feel really encouraged. I was in Sao Paulo for the last two weeks. I was there for a committee meeting with Fibria. I had a chance to present at the stock exchange. They're doing some really interesting things. They have a carbon index, by the way. We should put a link to that on your site. Really interesting conversations, leading conversations that get missed because they're in Portuguese. Um, but then I had a chance to hang around a little bit and catch up with a few other folks that I've I've had the pleasure of getting to know. And then since I had some time, I went with some friends to a musical performance at this really neat theater, sort of music theater, quite a small venue, maybe a hundred people that was restored through a crowdfunding effort called Casa de Francisca. And there was a cover, uh, there was a band, not a cover band, a band, uh, Mayana. The lead singer happens to be the daughter-in-law of Gilberto Gil. Amazing voice, kind of reminds wow. me of Feist, just absolutely wonderful. And she was covering Shusha songs. 
I don't know if you guys know Shusha. Hmm. Shusha was a megastar when I lived in Brazil in the late 80s, continued to be a megastar, sort of known for her cheerful singing and dancing and engaging everyone. Kind of a Brazilian thing, hard to translate, uh, but just a marvel of a human. And in a way, I credit her with teaching me Portuguese because I watched the Shusha show when I was there. And when Mayana did these cover tunes of Shusha, I realized that along with being like crazy kitsch and retro and a little bit wacky and out there, the songs are about love and about looking after each other and about wanting to live on earth and making sure we get it right. Because Shusha at the beginning of every show would arrive from another planet. So she arrives <laughs> from this other planet, but is like, you know, earth is kind of awesome. I like it around here and we should be good to each other. So what does that have to do with the path forward? I was, I was reminded for the millionth time, the value of art and creating things with one another and in collaboration with people and sharing the beautiful parts of it and inspiring one another to recognize the good parts that matter. And that wasn't just a sort of fun show, although it was fun. Like you should have seen these were, you know, as I mentioned, I'm almost a half a century old. Most of the people in the room were about my age. So these are like, you know, not the hipster crowd, mostly men, lots of women as well. And they were so into it. They looked like five-year-olds. They were bouncing up and down. They were having such a good time singing songs about being good to one another. And this is at a time when, I'll, I'll just veer into the dark side for a moment. This is at a time when in Brazil, like in other parts of the world, there are some really, really negative, I'll just say fascist, not okay forces getting a lot of airtime. And those run counter to what we're trying to do, right? Those run against being kind and inclusive. They run against what nature has taught us. Nature has explained very well that biodiversity is resilience. It is a form of efficiency. It is a form of a future insurance policy. And so inching towards sameness is a dangerous, dangerous prospect. That's not just a political point of view. It's what nature's been building into her instruction manual for 3.8 billion years. So hearing that from an unbelievably talented vocalist, wearing the kookiest outfit you've ever seen, looking really sexy, and just having all these people bouncing up and down with joy was a reminder that part of the path on this field trip of life isn't just climate science and policy. It's just reveling in what feels good and right. I have a bumper sticker that I bought on the lot at a fish show that says, save the earth so we have some place to boogie. <laughs> nice. <laughs> exactly. Mayana would be right there with you. I'll mm -hmm. send you the link to her uh, parts of her show. It was just mind bending and heartwarming. I think that's part of the path. It really speaks to a lot of the things that we think about the interconnectivity is sort of we're all in this together. We have this moment to bend the curve. I mean, we're talking about reversing climate change. We sort of look at it from a very carbon centric point of view and Nori stays laser focused on the carbon removal, but we know that's just one piece. So I would be interested to sort of hear from you, Lorraine, to paint this back to how you see carbon fitting into the broader sustainability story. And specifically, because we know Nori is just one piece of it. And obviously, we're not hubristic enough to say we're reversing climate change alone. No, we're just trying to push along in this direction by starting a new market. So how do you see kind of the whole carbon story fitting together? Yeah, um, I love that question. And I think it actually underscores some of where the conversations will go in those webinars that you referenced with John Elkington and team. So I'm, I'm really excited that that's going to unfold. 
I think there's a few ways. One is in that broader narrative or paradigm. And I think you do contribute greatly to that, which is helping companies. So let's, let's talk about corporate sustainability for a moment, which is really where a lot of my focus has been. It's helping companies recognize that as they do what they do, which is develop and implement strategies, sustainability, innovation, investment, all the things they do as they go about their strategic ways, that they shift their understanding and therefore their planning and implementation of their plans to go well beyond emissions reduction. Because what we've noticed so far is that companies have really focused on emissions reduction and energy, renewable energy. That's been where they go. So I think the opportunity here is to help every company across any value chain see that this is a story they are part of. Obviously, you guys are really switched on to agriculture and other points of value chains that touch the soil, but there's more. I'll give a super quick example that's been on my mind lately where we could take, for example, automotive. They've been thinking about climate for a while. They've been looking at lightweighting and getting energy efficiency into their fuel and approach to moving cars forward. That's great. And they need to do more of that. And you know, thank you for doing that. But what if we looked at how the cars were actually made and looked at the materials that go into the interior of a car. We've got interface making climate positive carpet tiles. What if some of those climate positive carpet components were in the interior of a car? We've got Covestro making um, industrial foams and, and other plastics and coatings using CO2 as a feedstock. What if some of those were in the interior of the car? It starts to get more interesting. But even then, you're still just looking at a piece of the puzzle. What if we go to the wider system and we say, we know that vehicle electrification is happening. It's happening more or less in some regions. What if we go to a region where the grid is still not very renewable? So you've got an electric vehicle, you plug it in, and this is what a lot of people argue against electrification, right? Oh, but they still burn coal here. Okay, no problem. Plug your car in, you're charging, or plug the car in, it might not be yours, you're sharing it. And now that electricity is drawn on a grid that is not renewable. But the 10 Carbon X Prize finalists, all of which are making products across different value chains, not all in energy, in many, many value chains, are using CO2 as feedstock for their products. So that non-renewable, whether it's coal or gas energy generation, well, that's what we'd like to transition off of in the long term. We know the best case energy scenarios include burning fossil fuels into the future, at least a couple decades out. So as we're doing that, we're capturing that CO2 as feedstock. So you plug in your EV, you capture that CO2 that goes into totally other value chains that have nothing to do with the car that you plugged in, which by the way, is including climate positive interior materials and very efficient. I think those kinds of system shifts that touch multiple value chains that draw on emergent technologies that rethink how we understood that waste CO2, that recognize the opportunities in many, many different ways, and by the way, have the potential to be highly commercially uh, viable. I think that's how we shift and stop talking about emissions reduction only within the corporate strategy context. Yeah. The Norway term around here that you've heard a million times by now is more shots on goal. I think it's important that we have lots of uh, different things going on. We get hung up sometimes with monetizing ecosystem services. Sometimes if you isolate one variable in this complex system, you could uh, overdo it too much. And we like carbon removal because it is relatively simple. But if you think about the entire climate space and activism and economics that make it up, it's also a very complex ecosystem. 
and we do need all these different projects going on. There's also a line, I think John Stuart Mill has it in On Liberty. He says something like, there's always a party of order and a party of progress. And if you only had one of them, they would just run, like it would either be the pure status quo or it'd be like total Jacobin French Revolution style, do everything from scratch. You need you need both of them in relationship to temper the worst elements of the other. So even sometimes if we're, if we're criticizing people that we don't necessarily like their approach to climate change, in a, in a weird way, I'm almost grateful that they exist no matter what, just for the example. Feel free, that was a tenuous one, but uh, I wonder if you agree. That was beautiful, Ross. And I think, Lorraine, if you want to respond. uh. Yeah, you know, you've touched on the language point and in interesting ways. I know we we don't have all the time in the world, so I'll try to bundle this one and put a bow on it. You referenced an author whose work I'm not familiar with talking about order and progress, and that is eerily relevant to the conversation today. Those two words translated in Portuguese are the current official flag of Brazil. Yeah, or or demi progresso. Exactly. And if you're bored and looking for reading, my most recent blog post uh, redrew the Brazilian flag. And what I did was I've been having a lot of fun with Google Translate. It's really fun. You can put a word in and translate it, but then you can see alternative translations. And some of them are just helpful synonyms and some of them verge on absurd. That's a whole other fun conversation. But if you just take some time and think of a synonym for order, one of them is sequence. And another synonym for progress is evolution. And so I redrew the flag to think about sequence and evolution, which to me is just a reinterpretation of what nature is doing all the time. It's sequencing our evolution. We may or may not understand it. We may or may not like it or benefit from it. I I just throw that out there because it's quite interesting. You referenced order and progress. But more importantly, I believe language is important. I think there's a reason to explore and test why different terms work or or how to improve a narrative with better language. The folks at Carbon X Prize released a really interesting port, a report in during Climate Week the other day around the language of carbon and exploring, you know, carbon removal versus circular carbon, et cetera. So good things to hone in on there. But two points I want to make on this that I remind myself and I I try to do so respectfully when I hear people demanding a certain form of language, which comes up more than I would like in our field, and I'm not sure it's always useful. The first is that there is not going to be one phrase because we don't all speak the same language. Like even if we all decided carbon removal is the one, guess what? It doesn't mean anything in Mandarin or Portuguese. So, you know, get over ourselves, North American white people speaking English. There's a whole big world out there and they don't all speak English. So we're not going to find the right phrase. We don't need the right phrase. Reminder, nature loves diversity. But the second thing I remind myself is to check what has the language done to my understanding over time? I first learned about climate change, also known as the greenhouse effect, in 1989, living in Brazil on a field trip to the Amazon. It was called o efeito estufa, the greenhouse effect, o efeito estufa. Then it became global warming, and then it became climate change. It's probably a whole other podcast to explore how and why that changed, but I, I really challenge us to think long and hard about how we understand the challenge when we call it global warming versus when we call it climate change and look for those clues from language or or lang clues, as I call them, because they give us a lot of information, not in an unequivocal way, but in a, in a useful way. We've had that, that discussion internally. Alessandra is is definitely on team global warming. Uh, Other people have switched back and forth. I don't want to put words in her mouth, but yeah, we have a, 
it's hard to find the correct way to describe complex effects like that. But having those discussions, I was reading something the other day that was saying that the most vibrant ecosystems are all where they they mesh up against each other. Yep. And I think that like we we have strong opinions. Obviously, if you listen to the podcast, you can probably guess some of our our leanings. But we're friends with lots of people who disagree with us and read a lot of things that people don't. And I think we're all better for that rather than having this sort of like static approach, which the worst crime of all is that of being boring, right? Uh, <laughs> so uh, but I agree with you. Yeah, nature favors the diverse and you should do the same thing ideologically and in your space when you're thinking about how to think about climate and uh, what to do about it. Would you say that's a fair, a fair thing to say? Yeah, I would. Absolutely. And the only line I would draw is recognizing where something really isn't okay. And yeah. that's where I think we're in an interesting space, including in the global warming, climate change, greenhouse effect space, where we need to be really honest and open to recognizing even genuinely uncomfortable truths and ask ourselves tough questions and come up with the most honest answers. Because the, the truth is, climate change has always been happening. It's anthropogenic climate change that is part right. of the problem, right? The climate's always been changing yeah. and that's okay. And, you know, if we kind of think about what was the first climate change, well, it was when this wonderful chemical reaction, photosynthesis occurred. That changed the climate in a dramatic way. And then you kind of go back and there was a great oxidation event, which killed off the majority of life on earth. And all of these climate changes are things that are beyond our control. But now we're having this global awakening, us being humans, that we are causing it. And now that we have this recognition, it's kind of this collective conversation we're all having. Well, what do we do about it? And there's no one right solution. It's kind of yes and, yes and, all of the above, let's move as quickly as possible. That said, we certainly have our biases about easier ways to cooperate and make, make things happen. Yeah, and obviously there there should be a, a line. Uh, this came up on the podcast that John Elkington too, where I was like, oh, I love Volan's approach where you're trying to show them a better way of doing things, these big corporations. You don't necessarily want to be harming the planet. It's like, well, yes, but you can't just give them a free pass. Sometimes you also need to be ready to criticize even publicly. And uh, like being open to other ideas or having a diverse set of ideas does not mean that you give everyone a free pass. You shouldn't be, yeah, so open-minded your brain falls out as the old, <laughs> as the old joke goes. But uh, yeah, we we should do another one of these because there, there's literally too much content. It's bursting out of the seams. <laughs> there's like, our brains are falling out. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's being hemmed in and. I was trying to do a little knitting Knitted. thing. I got, yeah, 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 I couldn't, I don't know. Offline, the, I'll get you guys knitting and spinning and then you'll be able to go there really easily. It's just rife with metaphors. We'll be the, the tech company with a knitting room. Gandhi like, had all his people spin every day. Every day? That's amazing. Day. Yeah, well, this, this has been a lot of fun. I look forward to the next time we have you back on and to all the collaborations between Nori and Volans and the broader community that wants to reverse climate change. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you.